Welcome to episode 8. Today we're talking to Dr Beth Payne. Beth is a senior clinical researcher at UCL Cancer Institute and she is also one of our leukaemia consultants on the wards. So Beth is going to talk about bone marrow failure, in particular myelodysplastic syndromes and research that she's currently doing in her lab. So um yeah so basically um we'll start with myelodysplastic syndromes yeah and obviously the s on the end of the syndromes is interesting <laughs> because <laughs> you would say myelodysplastic syndrome yeah but it's it's not is it no or is it no <laughs> I would say it's a group of disorders and it it's got quite a broad spectrum so it can be anything from just an anemia that your GP might pick up on a blood count where we would just watch you and that might last for you know somewhere in the region of 10 years to something that's much more like an acute myeloid leukemia with a really very poor prognosis. Uh, so there's a broad spectrum of diagnoses and within that and usually patients will come to clinic with a possible diagnosis of MDS and then we can go from there. So what are the initial signs? Would it be someone goes to the GP, not well, they have a blood test and then they see that the blood tests are low? Then... Yeah, so that's the most common presentation is a non-specific illness or a routine blood count from a GP. We do occasionally the more severe ones, the ones that are more close to an acute myeloid leukaemia, they will sometimes come through A&E because they feel more unwell. But more often than not, it's a routine blood count or it's a patient who hasn't felt well and has gone off to their GP and just had a blood count done because of that. And what kind of, is there any risk factors to this? Yes, so the majority of cases are idiopathic, so uh, we don't know. know. It's much commoner in older patients, so age I would say is the primary risk factor. Uh, But for the more severe forms, the more kind of acute myeloid leukaemia-like cases of MDS, those patients often have had prior treatment for another malignancy, so that could be another haematological malignancy so we often see it in patients who've had autografts for or lots of pre-treatment for CLL or non-Hodgkin's lymphoma but we also see it with people who've had chemotherapy or radiotherapy for solid tumours. So that's so, breast cancer. So breast cancer or ovarian cancer or whatever. So those patients we call secondary MDS and they tend to have a more aggressive progress and they tend to evolve into acute leukaemia more quickly. Do they present more and well? So they more they likely tend to present to. through something they tend like to. They, they do tend to, yeah. So I wrote an essay on MDS about 10 years ago now. But when I was looking at it, it seems that the subtypes have changed since I did. Mm. So... So they've sort of changed. There are a few bits that have evolved over the last, well, two years ago, two and a half years ago, there was a kind of review of the way in which we we diagnose it. But the main difference, actually, is that we used to use the term refractory anemia, and that was deemed to be a slightly old-fashioned and not very specific term, when we actually, it was just MDS. So we've done away with refractory anemia, essentially. So instead of calling it refractory anemia, refractory anemia with excess blasts, one, blah, blah, blah. We just call it MDS. (laughs) So that's the main difference. Um, But we have got some subtypes in there that weren't there before. So there's a subtype of MDS that's been recognised for years and years and years and years as being associated with a good prognosis. Uh, And who knows how anybody ever discovered this. But if you stain the bone marrow with something that looks at the iron in the red blood cells, the iron, instead of being kind of inside the nucleus of the cell, is in a little ring around the outside of the cell, and that's called a ringed sideroblast. So MDS with ringed sideroblast is associated with a good prognosis. And then over the last five years, when we've started to do way more molecular testing, turns out there's a specific gene abnormality that's associated with that pretty picture of ring, ringed sideroblast. 
So the diagnostic criteria now include some of the genetic abnormalities, including that particular gene. Another subtype that's sort of been delineated is patients who have loss of chromosome 5q. That's a separate entity now. And the reason for that is they respond to lenalidomide. So they have a different sort of clinical progress and they have a drug that's almost unique to their subtype. And so the more that you find out about genetic testing, is you'll find more and more out about this. Uh-huh. So we've, we've got lots of information on genetic testing, but one of the problems with genetic testing in MDS compared to something like AML or, or um, myeloproliferative diseases is that there's loads of genes. So instead of there being like two or three, yes or no, you've got MDS, there are 50. Most patients will have at least one mutation or a genetic, a cytogenetic abnormality, so a chromosomal abnormality. So about 95% of patients with MDS will have one or other of those things. So it's a good negative indicator. So if you don't have one, the chances are you probably don't have MDS, but it's not definitive. But in terms of like, let's say somebody goes to their GP and they're a bit anemic and so is it MDS or not? Because it's not always a clear-cut diagnosis. The genetic testing in that setting is much more difficult because actually it transpires that some people who are completely hematologically normal have these mutations as well. We don't. We we know that those patients are at increased risk of getting MDS and AML and in fact other malignancies, including lymphoid malignancies, so CLL and uh, lymphomas as well. And the risk depends on how much of it we see. So let's say we see only 10% of the cells have a mutation in a MDS type gene, your risk is maybe fivefold the normal population. But if you've got 20%, your risk is 50-fold the normal population. And that sounds like a lot, but actually in, in absolute terms, that risk is still really quite low, especially if you happen to be 65 when you look. So the chances of you getting something else are, are higher. And would you monitor those patients to see if anything was going to change it? So if they come to a haematology clinic and have that test done yes so we have we are starting to see these patients come through the clinic now because they go to the general clinic and they have the test done there still isn't scope to have that done in your gp practice i think there will be at some point i think that's the sort of vision really is that you'll it'll be part of your you know well well person screening when you're in your 60s like they check for cholesterol and exactly and but at the moment there's nothing we can do about it and your relative risk isn't massive the thing that's I guess maybe more important about it in the grand scheme of things is it also increases your risk of other things. So it increases your risk of cardiovascular disease and stroke. So you've got an increased risk of having MDS, but you've also got an increased risk of cardiovascular disease and stroke. So that's one of the things that we're doing in the lab is trying to find drugs that will treat just somebody who's got one genetic abnormality but is actually hematologically relatively normal. And so you could get the level of that mutation down to very low risk so that they wouldn't transform into... Malignancy. What kind of percentage of people would have that? So it, it's age dependent, but by the time you get to be in your 80s or 90s, about 20% of the population. So it's okay. common. Right. But what's not, but MDS isn't particularly common and AML isn't particularly common. So it's a fraction of the people that have the abnormality that will have a cancer that derives from that. It may be that way, way more people have problems related to their cardiovascular risk. And it may be just like doing a cholesterol test. And if we can get a drug that's not toxic that will treat those things, then it would be useful as a risk modifier for other things. So what does the marrow look like? Because it's, it's, it's failing, but it's all, also yes. a lot of activity. 
That's right. So the characteristic MDS bone marrow. So the first thing to say about MDS is it's it's really a, a descriptive term. It's the first thing I tell patients when they like, like what is this? Yeah. <laughs> it's not exactly like, what is this thing? Um, myelodysplasia is simply a description of things that look weird down the microscope. It just means the blood cells look funny. So the blood cells look funny down the microscope and that can be a wee bit funny or it can be like wildly abnormal. So for example, like a myeloid cell would usually have a, nu- a nucleus that's divided into lobes when it's a mature cell. And We're all end- like, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Totally. yeah totally know what so I mean. It's like little blobs, right? Okay. But in, in an MDS patient with severe MDS, with severe dysplasia, you wouldn't see any of those blobs. So it, it just doesn't look right. And the same with the red cells. The red cells should normally be like, I'm a cell on one side, I'm a cell on the other side, but they sometimes stick together or they don't divide properly or the cytoplasm just looks a bit weird. So so it just means they look funny down the microscope. There are usually too many cells in the bone marrow and then in the blood they're not, they're either getting out in the blood and dying or they're dying in the bone marrow and they're not getting out into the blood properly. So a hypercellular bone marrow, something with too many cells, is the usual presentation. But of course... There is something called hypoplastic MDS, which is where there isn't very many cells in the bone marrow. So how how would you diagnose? The first thing we would do is a, a blood count, obviously, and look at the blood down the microscope. So the myelodysplastic cells are often visible even on blood. So you can make a diagnosis. Peripheral blood. Peripheral blood from peripheral blood. The red blood cells tend to be large as well, so it's one of the common causes of big red blood cells. And then we would look at the bone marrow. Sometimes we don't look at the bone marrow if it's like 95-year-old and... Yeah. kind of feel like but mostly we'd look at the bone marrow look for the cellularity of the bone marrow like we just discussed what the cells look like down the microscope how many of the cells that are in the bone marrow look like blast cells so leukemia cells the genetics of the bone marrow so the chromosomes and then the molecular studies which look at 50 specific genes that are associated with mds so how many blast cells will make your diagnosis become a, yeah so a it's kind of a like a it's a spectrum, really, yeah. rather than a black and white thing. So people often, people, you can imagine that somehow rather leukemia sounds way worse yes. than MDS, yes. but actually it's, it's to some extent a bit of an arbitrary decision between somebody who has 19% blast who's called myelodysplastic syndrome with excess blast 2 and someone who has 20% blast who's called acute myeloid leukemia. So is that the cutoff? That's 20%. the cutoff. 20% is the cutoff. But, you know, it's... It's a bit of an imprecise science because diagnostically, the criteria is that's on the aspirate. So that's the liquid part of the bone marrow that we look at down the microscope. But sometimes you'll find that when you look at it down the microscope, you get 5% blast and then the man in the flow lab, so that's where they label each of the cells with an antibody, he says, oh, actually the blast count on the flow is 21%. Or it all looks fine on the aspirate, on the flow, that's fine. And then you get a trephine, which is the piece of bone. Mm-hmm. And there it looks like there's way more cells that are blast cells so you have to take the whole thing together the nice thing is that this treatment's largely the same between somebody who's got a low blast count aml and someone who's got an mds with a high blast count so what is the treatment Um... yeah so the treatment depends partly on the patient's age and fitness uh, and obviously the stage of their mds so low risk mds we haven't really talked about risk there's a scoring system which allows you to assess risk of the patient's likelihood of transforming to AML and the patient's projected life expectancy. And that's based on thousands of patients who've had MDS, but was last revised about five years ago before we had a lot of this molecular 
diagnostic information and really probably doesn't account for patients who've been treated with more, more recent drugs. So the scoring system is based on the percentage of blasts in the bone marrow, the haemoglobin, the white cell count, the platelet count and the genetics. So it's your blood count, your blast count and your genetics. No molecular information in that at all. And it ranges from very low to very high. So it's very low, low, intermediate, high and very high. It it gives you a good flavour for how different MDS can be depending on the patient. So the very low risk patients have a median life expectancy of more than 10 years and the high risk, very high risk patients have a median life expectancy of five months. So it's a massive spectrum really. And I suppose those patients that have a life expectancy of over 10 years and they're older, that's when you treat more conservatively, I would imagine. Exactly. So those patients, we usually watch and wait. If they're anemic and they're symptomatic, we can give them injections of EPO. Not all patients will respond to EPO, but a significant proportion, about two thirds of patients will get a response to EPO injections and that can massively improve quality of life. If they don't respond to EPO, we often put them on a transfusion programme, so that's just supportive care, really. And then for the more advanced cases, so patients in whom they've started to progress towards AML, got azacitidine, which is licensed um, for patients who have MDS with excess blast 2, so that's more than 10% blast. So is that like first-line treatment, chemotherapy? Well, treatment, it would depend on the age of the patient. So if the patient right. is a transplant-eligible patient, yeah. so somebody who's less than 65, or if they're just an older patient who's incredibly fit then we can give them AML chemotherapy. So MDS with excess BLAST 2 are eligible to enter all of the AML studies, including you know, AML 19, AML 18. If they're young and fit and they have a donor, we would consider them for a transplant. In the non-transplant eligible patients, or in patients where they have a complex carrier type or a genetic abnormality in the p53 gene so this is like people who have a bad prognosis those sorts of patients tend not to respond as well to traditional chemotherapy so like dal or flag they sometimes do but actually they often don't respond and azacitidine azacitidine never cures patients it's sort of not fussy about your genetics you know so actually it's often a better option for patients who have horrible genetic features because it's much milder on the patient they can be treated most of the time as an outpatient they generally have quite a good quality of life you know i've got patients who've carried on working through the razor scene pop into daycare in the morning have yep. the razor and then go to work and you still have a transplant as an option potentially down the line if that then failed? So for ASA patients who are transplant ageable, you know, age transplant wise. Mm. Um, you wouldn't bother with ASA? No, you, you, well, if you've got more than 5% blast, you need to debulk the disease, right? So you need to get to less than 5% blast before you can do a transplant. So yes, you could use azacitine or you could use chemotherapy. The ones in which I would use ASA would be the ones where the genetics would favour azacitine being more likely to get a response or in patients who are maybe just kind of borderline in terms of their fitness but you do sometimes see that patients get azacitine get much fitter and then you say right actually this is a reasonable candidate to transplant i think there's probably quite a lot of controversy about whether or not it's really appropriate to transplant patients who've had azacitine rather than conventional chemotherapy because if you think about other conditions well aml and and ALL, you really want to have undetectable disease before you transplant the patients. The ones that relapse are the ones that have even got the teeny-weeniest bit of disease that you can see. And we know with azacitidine we're not getting that depth of remission in patients. 
However, I think we don't know yet enough, you know, they haven't been around for long enough and there's not been a trial that says azacitidine versus DA is induction yeah. pre-transplant and maybe there should be. And, and we do transplant patients who have azacitidine. Can I just ask one question going back a step? Um, why is the focus on the blasts if there's many other types of cells maybe in the bone marrow that are kind of abnormally formed? Uh-huh. So all of the cells in the bone marrow in an MDS patient are abnormal. I think that's, I think, I think that's important to say. So the sort of focus on, on blasts is much more about disease evolution to something okay. different. So when a patient transforms from an MDS sort of state where there's less than 5% blasts to an AML, you usually find a new genetic abnormality. It's an evolution of the disease, so it was in a state where it was kind of minding its own business, and now it's in a state where it's rapidly progressive. And the patients we see with AML, how many of them will have had some sort of MDS Yeah, significant proportion to... of them. And a lot of them, when they have their chemotherapy on AML 18 or 19, will go back to more of an MDS-type state. And sometimes you don't really pick up on that until you start seeing them in clinic after they've had their treatment and their counts are still a bit rubbish or suddenly they've got a monocyte count of six and you weren't really expecting that and it turns out their underlying disease was CMML where you have a high monocyte count but it's an MDS. So you, you do often put them back to their kind of MDS state. For the AML diagnostic criteria, there is an AML diagnostic criteria that specifically says AML with with evidence of dysplasia but sometimes you don't see it really into you know if you've got a big marrow full of blasts you're not really likely to see so much dysplasia because actually most of what's there is blast. Is it right to call MDS pre-AML mm-hmm. or, or is that I quite think a negative it, way to? And that's often how I tell patients okay. what they have okay. unless they've got very good risk disease. Okay. Uh, And if they've got very good risk disease, I often make the analogy of something like having a smear test and having some abnormal cells. We can't make it go away in the in the way that you can, but it's um it's a kind of on the road. Yeah, you yeah you got it's an indolent disease that kind of generally minds its own business and that they should treat it as such, even although I I always tell them it's cancer. Um, And actually, if you look on the Wikipedia page for MDS, it doesn't say it's cancer. So I feel quite strongly that they should know it's cancer. It is a cancer. It's a clonal disease. We know that there are genetic abnormalities. And if you look at the bone marrow, those genetic abnormalities are usually in all of the cells that are there. So it's a cancer. It's just sometimes it's a cancer that sort of trundles along minding its own business. And sometimes it's a very aggressive sort of a cancer. So I usually tell the patients at the beginning, this is a cancer, and if they're on the lower end of the spectrum, we talk about how we assess risk, what might change, the time frame in which it might change, and then at least they're kind of, you know, got an idea how to plan their life. You know, yeah. it... I suppose for some patients that would fill them with a lot of anxiety, mm. as if they're just waiting for something to happen. So. So, yeah, so sometimes it takes people a little bit of time to come to terms with that kind of aspect of it. But I, can, I always feel like it's better to give them the information up front. Otherwise, you end up chasing your tail a little bit because then eventually, three or four years down the line, if something happens, or then they're surprised. Mm. You know. Yeah. <coughs> can you cure Please don't cough, Sonia. We're <laughs> recording. <coughs> <laughs> Yeah. Can you cure MDS? <laughs> With a stem, With cell, a stem transplant. cell transplant. Yeah. That's so, the only curative but, therapy for MDS. You can't cure MDS with chemotherapy alone. And how, su- how successful is that and, and how many do we do mm. at UCH? 
So, um, the main issue with transplanting patients with MDS is, be- is their older age. So I can't tell you exactly, but the, the average age of my patient in clinic is somewhere around about 67, I would say. So it's kind of right in the middle of that grey zone yeah. where some of them might be transplant eligible, but actually it's quite a high risk transplant. And I think we're in a phase of real growth in terms of treatments that are available for MDS and some and obviously AML as well. But um, So azocytidine has been around now for about 10 years, but there's also bunch of new things coming through that I think we'll start seeing at the IDH inhibitors and the FLT3 inhibitors. And so there'll be more options I think for there'll be more options for treatment that's not a transplant. So if you can imagine that it, it becoming a bit more like a myeloma where they have Revlimid and then they're fine for a little bit and then they have Bortezomib and then they're fine for a little bit and then they have an autograft and that's kind of how I would yeah. imagine ma- managing it. And the main reason for that is that although transplants are curable, they still come with quite a high mortality. I mean, the transplant, the transplant related mortality in an over 65 with an unrelated donor is about 25%. But most people would agree that the lower risk patients, although they do better if you transplant them earlier, they still have a mortality and therefore it's better to wait and until they progress and then treat them and decide if they're fit enough for transplant at that point. Younger patients, you can transplant yeah. up front. You don't need to wait till they've got AML. You can just transplant them with NDS.